Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. We've had a number of guests on the show focused on the A to J gap, as well as issues of social justice. Today's guest, Jazz Hampton, combines both. Jazz is CEO and general counsel at TurnSignal. TurnSignal is a Minnesota-based tech company that Jazz co-founded in the wake of the deaths of Philando Castile and George Floyd. So what is TurnSignal? Well, TurnSignal is a mobile app where the user is stopped for a traffic violation or involved in an accident, can push a button and be connected automatically to an attorney to receive real-time, on-demand legal guidance. The goal of the app is simply this, to keep drivers safe and empowered while speaking with law enforcement. Before joining TurnSignal, Jazz was a director of diversity inclusion and a practicing attorney at a national law firm, among other roles. Jazz has won a number of accolades, most recently being named to the Fast Case 50. Join us today for a fascinating conversation about TurnSignal's growth plans, how this first-generation college grad ended up in law school, and how a mentor made all the difference when he was starting out. It was a great conversation. I hope you enjoy. Jazz, thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to have a conversation today and, and looking forward to the discussion. Appreciate it. As am I. First off, congratulations on being one of the Fast Case 50 uh, honorees. It's a great uh, recognition of the work you and your team are doing. No, I, and that's exactly right. It, it does feel like a team win. Uh, it's it's a lot of effort goes into to building what we've been building, but to be recognized by that group obviously is is an honor for me and for the entire team. So I appreciate it. A lot of names on there that I'd be happy to be on any list with those names. So it's awesome. It's an impressive group of people, that's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Let's start. I want to talk a little bit about your journey, but let's start for the audience who may or may not be aware of Turn Signal. Give us the elevator speech as to what TurnSignal does. Yeah, so TurnSignal is an app that anyone can have on their phone. And when you're pulled over or when you're in an accident, you instantly press one button or you can set up voice commands and it starts recording that interaction with your front-facing camera. And at the same time, it video conferences an attorney to be on the call with you 24-7, 365. The mission behind TurnSignal is simple, and it's three-pronged. It's to protect drivers' civil rights, to de-escalate these roadside interactions, and third and most importantly, to ensure that all drivers and law enforcement return home safe at the end of every day. I am one of the three co-founders here working in the business, myself, Andre, and Mike. We're three black professionals born and raised in the Twin Cities here in Minnesota. And we've become, we, the the state of Minnesota, have unfortunately become a, a recent epicenter for a call for social change. And so we all quit our corporate jobs to, to start turning signal back uh, at the end of the summer of, of 2020 uh, and haven't looked back since. So you hit on it, but I think it's fairly self-evident. But let's tease out a little bit more. What's the problem you're trying to solve with this technology? Yeah, you know, there's there's the initial opportunity that we saw for technology to be an intervention and what we learned that it also was doing. But the, the beginning was simple. My co-founders, Andre and Mike, they've been best friends since they were three years old. They're best men at each other's weddings. They've known each other their entire lives. They also grew up with the Castile family. And Philando Castile in 2016 was the first incident that really hit the national scene from the state of Minnesota. Uh, they grew up with that family playing sports. Uh, in fact, Andre went to J.J. Hill, the, the school that Philando was, was a chef at at the time of his death, right? So this was our community in a very real way that was being affected with negative outcomes from police interactions during traffic stops. Then we fast forward to George Floyd. 
and we're all working our professional spaces and, and we were saying, hey, listen, I've gone to every protest. I've gone to the vigils and the marches. There's a critical mass of awareness around the need to, to de-escalate these interactions and have them go smoother at, at a minimum. And the critical mass of awareness is there, but what are we doing to actually build a solution? No one was doing that. Uh, and so we honestly, as you know, they're both MBAs, my co-founders, one is a finance background, the other tech sales. My undergrad is in computer science. And, and I'm a, uh, an attorney practicing law at the time, adjunct professor of law, director of diversity inclusion, over 300 employees in 15 states at my law firm. Uh, and I was a public defender when I was in law school. All of these experiences and backgrounds come together to make us the perfect people to build a solution that can make these roadside interactions with law enforcement safer uh, by the book and have a better outcome for everyone involved, both the officer and the driver. How did you generate the idea? Was it a uh... Just a discussion between the three of you. Was it your technology background? How, I mean, you look at the solution now and you think, what an elegant, straightforward, simple solution. Why didn't I think of that? But other people didn't think of it. You guys thought of it. <laughs> yeah, it was. And actually, it was Andre and Mike that started having conversations with, actually, they're talking with folks in the startup ecosystem here in Minnesota, which is actually really strong. And they're having conversations about what they can do. And they kept calling me as the friend that was the lawyer saying, hey, Jazz, what do you think about this? Or how does this work? Or how would attorneys connect? Or what would the interest level be? And what they eventually said was, Jazz, you have to start it with this. You have to leave your job. I was a year and a half or two years from making partner. I had a, a, an offer to become a visiting associate professor at one of our law schools here in Minnesota. And I just sat down with my wife. And what, what we said was, you know, this is what I wanted to go to law school for to help people that needed it most, especially from my community, with an opportunity that I was given, which is receiving a legal education, right? Granted, I thought it would maybe be one day a pipe dream of being in the Equal Justice Institute or, or working for an organization like that, not quite what I'm doing now. But what better way to use you know, all of our, our skills and backgrounds than building a technology solution? And, and I miss my days of computer science, so it was good to, to dive back into that as well. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so how does the technology work? Not how it's coded, but sort of how as a practical matter does it work? How do you access attorneys? There's a whole series of questions I have for you about how you use your user base, how you communicate, how you teach them how to use the app. I think I've seen you say it's not a get out of jail free card. It's not designed to keep people from getting that speeding ticket if they're in fact speeding. It's designed to make sure everybody has a safe interaction. So tell us a little bit about how it works. Yeah. And so the way it works and the way we educate the actual end user, the people that are driving is, hey, you should have this on your phone. It should be readily available in, in a quick and, and easy manner. I always keep it on my home screen, of course. And when you're pulled over, you can either set up that voice command so you can just say you can activate Siri and say, I'm being pulled over, whatever words you want to activate the, the application. And it instantly pulls up. And not only does it open the application, it starts running. Or you can just press the one button to open it and then press the one button that says I'm being pulled over. And from there, what it does is it calls attorneys that practice criminal law in the state that you're driving in. We're currently in six states. By the end of 2023, we'll be in all 50 states. But when you press that button, it's only connecting you to an attorney that practices law in that state. If you press the I'm being pulled over button, it's a criminal attorney. If you press the I've been in an accident button, it's a personal injury attorney. And so the way it's routed on our back end is to get you directly to an attorney that knows the situation you're in and practices that type of law. And from there, that attorney is there. And I always say, like me being in the passenger seat of anyone's car that I drive in, uh, if you're pulled over and 
if my wife is pulled over, I'm in a passenger seat. She doesn't lean back and say, my lawyer's going to talk to you. She goes through the interaction in the typical manner. If the officer said, can you open your trunk or can I search your vehicle? She would probably turn to me and say, Jazz, like, is this something I should be doing? And I'd say, you know, maybe you, you should ask if there's reasonable articulable suspicion leading to that probable cause search, right? That is the level of interaction the attorneys are having, as well as the conversation between the attorney and the driver before the officer gets to the window. That's the thing that people forget. The lights don't come on. You don't put your car in park and then he's at your window in 12 seconds. There's usually running of the plates a little prep time before they come to your door. And that's a great time to level set with the attorney. Hey, here's what maybe I'm concerned about. Here's what I've been doing today. Here's what I have concerns about in my previous experience with law enforcement. Philando Castillo was pulled over 49 times in 13 years before he was killed in, in the final interaction. That can be frustrating if you've been pulled over that many times. It's also a great opportunity for the attorneys to de-escalate the driver and to say, hey, listen, I know this is number 48. I'm, I'm sure you're frustrated and upset. But here's what we need to do in this situation to get you through it in the safest and best way possible. And that's really uh, every attorney on our platform. We find them. We go through the rigorous background checks. We, we check their, the disciplinary history. We check their license status, the insurance, all of those things. And then we send them through a third-party de-escalation training, again, to bolster that mission of getting everyone home safe and de-escalating the interaction. And so through that de-escalation training, that first conversation they have with the driver before the officer is at the window. It's really important as well. You learn about what their concerns are, how you can help them through that situation, watching for those physical and nonverbal cues for, for their, their level of stress and better provide some guidance to that individual in the moment. How does the technology find an available attorney? We can all be in court. We can be busy. Is it like Uber where it sends out a notice to a field of attorneys and somebody who's available pops on the call? I hate to sound boring, but yes, that's 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 how it works. And if the if those attorneys are in court or they're in a meeting at the time, all they have to do is open their app and say I'm and hit one button that says I'm not available, and then the calls won't come to them or it won't be reached to them. But what we find is most attorneys just leave it on all the time, and if they if they're able to grab it, they grab it, and and that's a really positive experience for our users as well. It helps expedite the attorneys getting there. We don't use you know the Rolodex system or anything like that. Is this pro bono by the attorneys? Are they compensated? What's the financial model? Yeah, actually, the, the financial model, and I was just talking about this with someone earlier today, all the attorneys on our platform, or the vast majority of them, actually pay us to be on the platform. Uh, it's a nominal fee that is not overly onerous. It's a rounding error in a marketing budget, we always say, for a law firm. But what it does is it gives them that personal accountability. If I was paying attorneys a certain amount of dollars to be on the calls or per month, I don't know. Maybe they would. Maybe they wouldn't. But now there's they have a little skin in the game, right? Now they're saying, "Well, I'm paying X amount of dollars a year for this. I should leave this on. I should answer this call when it comes in. I'm paying it for a multitude of reasons. One, this is great branding and marketing. You're attaching a criminal practice or a personal injury practice with an organization that's doing really good and meaningful work. That's great marketing for your organization. But also, this is lead generation opportunities. Turn Signal doesn't have the A in our name because there's a lack of access to justice. And what better way than to connect with, directly with consumers in their time of need to say, hey, if it's not you, maybe it's your friend, maybe it's your cousin, maybe it's your spouse that wants legal help. Now you know an attorney and you have access to justice in a way that maybe you didn't feel like you did previously. How do you find users? I sense from the things I've read about Turn Signal that part of it, Blue Cross, was a sponsor for their employees. Is it sort of an employer-sponsored program? Is it retail? A little bit of both? Yeah, in, in the startup world, I think we're called a B2B2C. So yeah, there's any consumers that are downloading the platform every day. It's $60 a year for consumers to have turn signal, whether you're pulled over 100 times and use it 100 times or you're pulled over one time and only use it that one time. 
it's $60 a year, no matter what. However, if you make under the financial threshold in in the specific state you live in, we never charge you a penny ever, no matter how many times you use it. And those are subsidized by corporations. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing we do is is we go to corporations like <laughs> to people like myself, who was the director of diversity inclusion at my law firm, or we go to companies like iHeartMedia or uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield, like you said, or Salo or other or Catholic Charities, Greater United Way in the Greater Twin Cities, all of these companies. And we say, hey, listen, you're looking to improve your diversity, equity, inclusion for offerings to all of your employees. You're looking to retain them during this time of the great resignation. You're looking to do all of these things. What are you providing as, as benchmarks for that? What are you actually doing and providing to them other than writing nice mission statements and, and diversity, equity, inclusion statements on your website? What a great way to fulfill a piece of that goal by providing turn signals to all of your employees as a benefit to make sure they're feeling safe driving to or from work or their kids at basketball or weekend, right? Uh, if you're already giving health and dental and sometimes pet insurance, this absolutely fits into the offerings that you're giving to your employees and, and makes the world of a difference. Let's talk about the other side of the equation, the law enforcement side. Do they feel threatened by this? How does that, I assume you communicate with various law enforcement agencies when you move into a jurisdiction. Maybe not, but sort of how do you educate that side? Yeah, you're absolutely correct. We, we have to talk to law enforcement before we go into jurisdiction just because we want them to understand that our mission statement is also to keep them safe, right? I want them to know when they see a turn signal bumper sticker on the back of a vehicle, it's actually going to be the safest interaction they have that day. For the same reason that interactions are safer in front of any camera, whether you're at a bank or in the front of your house, your friend's house that has a ring doorbell. These are going to be a safer interaction. These people are conscious about their rights and protecting them as well as protecting the officer that's approaching their vehicle at the time. So that's absolutely right. We roll out and we talk to them all. In fact, we talked to only tw- over 20 police officers before we launched in the state of Minnesota, the first state that we were in. Say, hey, listen, this is the platform we build. This is what we're doing. When you see this, what are some thoughts you have? What are tweaks that we can make? We actually changed the way we, we routed calls to attorneys based on feedback from officers saying that I don't want to come to a door and knock on it. And they say one minute and hold their index finger up and say one minute. I'm waiting for something. They're like, I, I don't want to do that. Great insight that we learned from them. But when we're having these conversations, we always say, how many times have you pulled someone over and you did see marijuana on their dashboard and had a right to search their vehicle? And they refused and said they knew their rights and you can't search the car. Now there's going to be an attorney that says, you know what, actually, that is sufficient probable cause to search the vehicle. Why don't you make sure to let them do it and, and we'll take care of it on the back and we can work through what happens after this, right? This is helpful to them as well. If everything is being done by the books, which as they say, the vast majority of officers are doing, then everything is going to be better for it. The analogy we've heard most is it's a lot like body cameras. It's a little unsettling when they first started to become prevalent. People were a little hesitant about having them on every day, but they've actually grown to appreciate that those body cameras are there every day because it's a source of truth. And so they see turn signal in a very similar light. I haven't had a single negative conversation about turn signal with an officer thus far. That's great. Now, what states are you in currently? You said you're in six? That's correct. We're in Minnesota, Georgia, California, Tennessee, Florida, and Illinois. So we're expanding quickly, I think, in the next four days. So in August, we'll also be, the beginning of August, we'll also be in Indiana. We're just going to keep expanding uh, to all these jurisdictions. We're moving at a really great rate now. We've understood what it takes and, and, and how we move into those states. We're just excited to keep finding more and more folks to be on the platform. What did you learn about the development cycle of the product that you would share with folks who may be interested in developing technology, particularly technology that has a social justice component to it? 
just like building a house, uh, it's, it costs twice as much and takes twice as long as whatever you think is the is the first piece of advice that I always give. And, and the other piece is if you can really get it as far as you can without a technical understanding or education, that is critically important. If you can say, I want the first screen to look like this. And if you click this button, it'll look like this. And if you click this button, it'll look like that. That can help in the development process unbelievably, uh, and we found that to be true with our process. We uh, worked with an external vendor to, to build our, our platform. It was actually someone I've known since third grade. Uh, I went to middle school with this the individual, and they're right here in Minneapolis, so it wasn't like I was outsourcing to another country. And if I had questions, I could drive over to their office and walk right in. But having a development partner like that, and it helps that I and, and my co-founder, Mike, have some te- technological understanding. I made the process a little quicker, but to use an analogy, it's like T-ball. It's a lot easier if you just set the ball on the tee for the development team rather than, you know, fast pitch. How many uh, development cycles did you go through? It sounds like you, you got input from your various stakeholder groups, from lawyers, from users, from law enforcement agencies. And I presume each one of those caused you to tweak or modify your program. Yeah. That's exactly correct. We talked to them and the, and the other people is, is businesses, right? Because businesses don't just want to send an email link to their employees and say, here you go. Here's the product they want to see. They want to have tracking capabilities. They want to have data, uh, non-employee specific data, but data nonetheless. So even they were stakeholders. And we tried to be really cognizant of all of those stakeholders before we even built the MVP. We had so many conversations. And there's in technology and when you're starting a business, there's so much excitement. You just want to go and go and go. It's really hard to be intentional and to have those conversations to really understand what you're doing before you jump in. But that's what we did. And so the initial iteration was really B2C focused as we were building the B2B offering. And then from there, those conversations helped tweak. But don't get me wrong, I I think we've updated that 25 times. We are updating it constantly. A great example is a lot of people were downloading and just pressing the button right away. They wanted to see what it looked like. And we have to have some kind of test button, some kind of call button, because we we had, I think it was in, in a three-day span after we were on NBC Nightly News, we had 1,300 new users in a day or two. And they were all testing out that button. And a lot of attorneys' phones were ringing. So we implemented a test button. You don't know what you don't know. And you have to build out something that is really uh, sustainable. And to do that the first time is, is difficult. So I'd say about five strong cycles of updates for sure. So you mentioned you started as a computer programmer, computer science. Yeah, computer science was my undergrad degree, and, and I was in a web development group at 3M here locally in Minnesota. And when I was there, I was <laughs> I was 21 years old, or maybe maybe even 20 at the time. 20 years old, I was really young. It's uh, 3M at the time was a, a little older company. I didn't feel like it was the best situation for me to, to, to keep doing forever. I'm very extroverted, and the teams there were very introverted as well. I think that is a little more true in a lot of computer science-based uh, working environments. So I applied to law school. And that was the summer I applied to law school, and I, and I hadn't gone back. I would tinker around, and I was doing development and, and coding in, in my own spare time, but I hadn't been in a, in a developing role since, since that summer at 3M. And if I, I think I read somewhere that you were the first in your family to go to law school. Yes. So I'm the youngest of four and uh, we're the first of, of our entire family to go to college, to graduate from college, let alone. And then I was the first to go to law school. So when I, I will never, I, I always tell the story as a, as a testament to my lack of knowledge, especially coming from computer science. I had no connection to law before going to law school. I was in towards my first semester And I was called on to summarize the case that we were discussing that day. And Professor Bowser called on me and he said, Jazz, can you give me, can you give me the IRA? Can you give me the summary of the case? And I said, 
yep, the person that was driving the car was found guilty. And he interrupted me. He was like, it's not guilty. This is torts class. Were they liable or not? And, I, and in that moment, I was like, I don't even know what is going on. I knew nothing about the law. I was truly in the way of a first-generation law student. I knew nothing about law. I had never taken a pre-law class. It was, it was brand new. But I knew that, you know, I'm a former college athlete. I played football in college. I played rugby in college. I've always been an athlete in the history of, of kind of my education. And then I am a fierce debater and I am argumentative. So I knew that I wanted to be a lawyer. I love litigation and teaching. If I wasn't doing this, I'd be a litigator still. I love litigation. So I always say it's sports and suits. <laughs> this is uh, an opportunity to go out there and compete and try to get a win for your client. And I love that competitive uh, aspect. So yeah, that was kind of my, my entry into law. And the same playlist I played before college football games, going out there on the field, it's the same playlist I'd play as I went to argue a summary judgment motion. It was a very similar endorphin release for me. That's awesome. Was it the love for debating that caused you to pick law school as uh, the change in career? Yeah, it was it was that, and I knew that the the litigation aspect felt really great. I I previously was when I was in high school, I, I wrestled a bit and I ran ran track as well. And it's a team sport, but you get to really showcase what you can do as an individual. And I think that that combined with my love for debate and, and arguments, as my parents would say, is what led me to know that I wanted to be a lawyer as well. You know, when you see a kid that is always pushing back and always de- debating with their parent, often you hear like, oh, this kid's going to be a lawyer. My parents have been <laughs> saying that for my entire life. So they, they were right on. As you navigated law school, did you find mentors? Did you find people to advise? Did you just sort of figure it out on your own? How did you navigate law school? You know, what I lack in natural <laughs> uh, natural abilities from an educational standpoint, I try to make up for in my, my social and networking aspects. You know, whatever the saying is, you know, A students in law school go on to be professors, B students are, are good in, in law firms, and C students run companies and, and firms or whatever the case may be. I was definitely in that bottom tier. I was not at the top of my class. And what I knew I had to do was go and find mentors to help me navigate the waters. And, you know, on top of you know, not being the top of my law class, on top of being a first-generation law student, I'm also a person of color in, in a law school. So I stick out a little bit in that way too. And so as I'm navigating these waters, I'm thinking, what do I have to do to make myself successful? I find people who look like me or have success, which is what I did. I found people in the legal profession here in Minnesota that were really great mentors for me, both people of color and not. And I relied on them a lot to help me understand what I was doing. I had hard lessons from them teaching me what I what I should and shouldn't be doing. And it really helped me grow. I, I'd send messages and letters to them all of the time saying I appreciate what they did because without those mentors, I absolutely would not have done or been able to do what I've done thus far in my legal career. One of them even sent a letter to the law firm that I applied to. I applied to 15 law firms through a summer internship program. I didn't get an offer back from any of them. And one of those mentors sent an email. He was in-house counsel at a large corporation, which was represented by the law firm I applied to. And he said, hey, I know this kid. His GPA might not be the best, but he had just switched from computer science into law, and he has a really promising future. I think you all should give him a shot. They did. I started working there as a clerk. I clerked there all three years of, of law school, and then I started my legal profession there. I really needed those mentors and people to be advocates for me in order to, to prove that I could be successful in those roles. Take that experience and now let's move forward to your role as Director of Diversity and Inclusion for Foley and Mansfield. What did you learn from that experience that translated into working as Director of DNI? 
terms of mentor, the need for mentorship, allies, et cetera? It's funny. There's so many organizations, even here in the Twin Cities, there's, you know, affinity bar associations. There's Twin Cities Diversity and Practice, which places diverse lawyers in places. I'm a mentor at my law school. I'm a mentor for my alma mater. I'm a mentor in all these places because there is such a need. And what I learned was everything, every little bit helps. Some lawyers are like, well, I don't have that much time. If you have a mentee that you meet with twice a month, uh, that actually makes the world of difference to them. And then when it turns the corner to actual law firms, we could do a whole other podcast on my belief that the lack of representation of diverse individuals and women within law firms, and then especially at partner and senior level within organizations is atrocious. I look at the now data every year and it's like, it's really frustrating. And it's because that inclusion part of DEI is really missing. Everyone gets the lawyers into the door. Uh, everyone has a, a really diverse starting class of lawyers. But what are you doing to foster an environment within your organization to want them to stay? I have to do that now within my organization. What am I doing as a leader to make sure that people want to stay here? It's a direct diversity inclusion. I, I kept saying, if you don't find someone above you, as I was saying earlier, that looks like you, that can help you navigate those waters, that's a strike number one. Now I have to find someone maybe that doesn't look like me, but that really cares a great ally. And then really work with them. And I just have to feel at home. Law firms are still really, really struggle with that. And and I don't have the silver bullet for all of the ways that we can help. But one of them is just being upfront with the intentions. I once posted a job for an associate need that we had. And in my LinkedIn post, I said, hey, we're looking for an attorney in our office. We're hoping if you know anyone that is diverse and also looking forward, please send them our way. We'd love to interview them. And I got a call from the compliance director of the law firm. He's like, hey, you got to take that down. It could be read as reverse racism or reverse discrimination because it reads that we might only be looking for people of color. I was like, well, you read it that way. That's not what it says. And if you did read it that way, then maybe I'm not the person for this role because I think that this is exactly what we need to do to let people know that we are inclusive when we want them here. Of course, we're going to interview everyone and everyone's going to get a fair shot, but we have to let them know that we are seeking this diversity because we don't have it. And that was a really telling point and, and all the credit in the world to the, the named partner of that firm. He was like, whoa, I didn't know that message went to you. I disagree. You can leave that up. It's fine. But it's an, an example of how we have a lot of work internally to do, even around our fears of what can happen within that diversity, equity, inclusion, hiring within law firms, especially. Do you enjoy doing that job? Did it bring some satisfaction or was it, it had to be incredibly challenging, not because the firm is particularly good or particularly bad, or but just law firm environments as a general proposition are challenging. Yeah, anything I would say, you're exactly right. Anything I would say in this space is not representative of that law firm. It's representative of our profession, especially here in Minnesota. It was really challenging. It was hard to find folks. And it's like, it's a chicken or the egg situation. This is 100% true. I once had an attorney email me, a black man we were interviewing for a position. And he said, he went through the first interview and it went well. And then we asked him to have a follow-up second interview. And he replied back to me and HR and said, hey, you know what? I looked over your website and I saw one attorney out of all of the attorneys that was black. Um, and it just doesn't seem like the kind of place I'd want to work at. So I'm, I'm not going to take a, an interview here. And then the last sentence was the, the toughest part of this. He said, it looks like I really dodged a bullet. And, and so that sense, it was like one of the, it was like a, almost a law school. I took a lot of ethics and corporate responsibility classes in law school. And it was like a, a question in that. What do I convey to the managing partner about what that individual said? Do I summarize their email and say, hey, they said the lack of diversity was a little off-putting and, and he was a little trepidatious about entering in a law firm 
that doesn't seem like it's representative of what he wants it to look like? Or do I forward his actual words that were a stronger condemnation of the summary that I just gave? Or will that give him the persona of an angry black person? Will they say, oh, well, geez, good thing we didn't hire him. He might have been tough within our organization. That was what made the role hard, that kind of situation. Because I felt like I was doing more than just work within the organization. I felt like I was doing broader reform. <laughs> and it was on my shoulders. And that, that sometimes can be really tough. But did I enjoy it? Did I want to do it? 100%. I am the type of person that wants to meet those kind of challenges head on. Other people might get a little frustrated by it. Well, let's go back to turn signal. You said the goal is to be in all 50 states by 2023. What, what are the challenges you're going to have to overcome to make that happen? Yeah, in 2023, uh, by, by the end of 2023, we will be in all 50 states. And what we're doing to do that is expanding the team that's bringing on those lawyers is the first thing. We have an incredible team doing that. Damian Wilson is leading that charge. He was a, a Thompson Reuter employee for 10 years. So he's been working with attorneys and getting them on platforms for his entire career. And he's done an unbelievable job here. Building out his team to do that is, is step one. And just talking to more attorneys on larger levels. Uh, one-to-one can get the job done, but one-to-many is better. So talking to larger firms that do criminal and personal injury, which are not ultra prevalent, and getting more folks on the platform and just more awareness around the work that we're doing. All you have to do is have it in your pocket. We used the analogy to Uber earlier on this call. If you have a job with Uber, you can leave your family while they're eating dinner and get in a car and drive around and be away from them and not be with them and be working and gaining money that way. With turn signal, you just have to have it in your pocket. You're still sitting at dinner. Maybe you get up and, and take a call for 15 minutes once every week or two, but it's not onerous from you from a day to day. And that's also building your marketing and branding. We see so many legal companies saying, hey, Let's uh, let's improve your marketing. I need you to write six blog posts and, and two articles and, and appear on three panels. Also, not what you have to do in this case. It's just already in your pocket and you can market it in the natural ways that you're already marketing. So that's the work we're doing is giving that message to attorneys and saying, we want you on the platform. Or it's partnering with larger legal organizations that have the database of attorneys already. We'd love to do that as well. That would make it a little easier on us. So all things that are opportunities in the near future for us. I understand you find lawyers in states. So if I get pulled over in Los Angeles, I'm going to get a California lawyer. But could it be someone in San Francisco? Could it be someone in Sacramento? How do you balance that? Yeah, that was one of our primary concerns. And we all, we debated segmenting, the, you know, how we use turn signal into markets instead of states. We considered, you know, L.A., Sacramento. San Francisco all being separate markets. But what we found is the attorneys are willing to take on the call. And if they aren't willing to travel to follow up, if they had to follow up, they're willing to pass it on to someone else that can do that. So, you know, with our attorney of networks, that's also when, while that situation might be frustrating for the attorney saying, well, I won't get a client out of this. But guess what? What if you're in LA and you won't get that client? But next time the Sacramento client calls and we have to transfer it down to LA, or someone in Sacramento answers and we have to transfer it from LA. So you can you can win and you could lose in, in that sense. So you might not have to answer a call and then you might get a brand new DWI case that needs to be sent over to you or a brand new you know, driving after revocation case that can be sent to you. So uh, we can just cross pollinate with the attorneys on the network if they're out of a physical location where they where they want to answer. But the other part is a lot of these attorneys are doing this from an altruistic standpoint. Hey, if I, we, we have a firm in, in Florida that said, hey, we never, we, we don't care if we never receive a client from this platform. We think that this is us doing a part of the work that we want to do for access to justice and, and immediate connection to attorneys that understand the law. And this is really good work. And then we can talk about it in the community. And that's what we see as value, not even, you know, garnering clients from it. Last question, and then I'll let you go because I know we're at time. 
What's the volume of usage of the system, just as a general sense? Yeah, we, we, we're having about the average of over the course of a month is one to two calls a day across the six states right now. So we know as we expand to more and more states, that's going to continue to go up. But it is something I love. Uh, I've even set my phone to ring when any of the calls go through. So <laughs> I, I know... <laughs> I must drive your family crazy. Yeah, I'm. I'm my (laughs) my wife works full time. She's a a dedicated employee to her company. She probably works more hours than I do. We also have a a, a four year old, a two year old, and a one year old. Oh my! My wife is like, you can turn that notification off, especially when it goes off in the middle of the night. But (laughs) you know, I love the work that I'm doing so much. I always want to be involved in understanding what's going on. So yeah, I mean, the the call volume is great. We're we're happy to see it coming through, and those are usually pretty real calls because that test button that we implemented. So we're excited about the number of users that and, and calls that we're seeing thus far. Well, Jazz, your passion for your work comes through loud and clear, and it's an incredible solution. And I wish you all the success that I know you're going to have. And thank you for being on the podcast. No problems. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I love this platform and the interviews you've done thus far have been great. So I hope people enjoy this one just as much. And thank you for letting me be a part of it. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.